Hi, I'm Mara Webster with In Creative Company, and today I'm delighted to be joined by the wonderful Jay Blakeson, who is the showrunner and director and executive producer of Culprits. And it, it sounds like when you were first approached for this project, you're such a fan of heist movies and kind of like crime genre and thriller films. Um, but I but I loved hearing you say that even with that, it wasn't an immediate yes, because with any project, you always want to think about, you know, what is my viewpoint in the way that I want to tell this story? And also just making sure that it's something that you love enough to spend potentially several years of your life invested in, in making and creating. Um, and so when you were considering this particular project, what were the questions that you were kind of asking yourself in that realm about how do I want to tell this story? And what is it that's going to make me stay in love with this for the next few years? Yeah, I mean, to start with, it's normally sort of uh, how thick and fast the idea is coming. Do you know what I mean? Because like when you get the first thing of like, you know, this this started off as a book. But if you get given like, you know, I think I've adapted books before. But when you sort of love a book the first time you read it, you know, you kind of just then want to spend some time thinking about, you know, is this going to generate? Is this going to I like the protons going to accelerate fast enough that the ideas are going to really, really come come to the fore so for me it was like can I do something that I'm interested in within this and can I do something that even though it may be familiar because it's in genre can I do something that is sort of doing something slightly different and a different flavor in that genre um and for me you know on this one the ideas were coming really thick and you could sort of feel that there was a lot of runway from the this central very simple setup of you know what would you do well, the setup for me was what would you do if you had a big bag of money, you could go anywhere and be anyone? And there's lots of questions of that. It's like, well, where does the money come from? <laughs> what are you going to do? With money? Are you going to spend the money? Are you going to not spend the money? Where are you going to go? Are you going to keep on moving around? Are you going to launder your money? Are you going to not spend your money? You, how long do you wait before you start to feel sort of like uh, like you're comfortable? So all these questions started coming really thick and fast. And I started like talking to Stephen about them. And he was just like, whoa, 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 let's make a deal. Write it down. So, you know, we made that deal. And then I knew I knew what. The pilot was going to be but then i could just sort of had a, you have this instinct of like the springboard of the, the pilot and the character of joe you can you can go and you know turn this into something that's fun and interesting entertaining and you know thoughtful and to your point, I love the fact that it's something where we actually know kind of episode one, okay, they achieved the heist and we're seeing the lead up of, of how it's going to be pulled off, what happened, what worked well, what went terribly wrong, and then the aftermath. And just the idea that it's like, you know, do you want to continue chasing adrenaline or do you just want to try and build a quiet family life for yourself? And so as you were looking at each of the characters that you wanted to get a little bit more in depth with, you know, even beyond him, as a central character, how did you kind of answer those questions of what would they be pursuing? Well, I think we started, I mean, we wanted to start basically from archetypes because everybody knows the genre. And so, you know, Joe is, you know, his role is very basic. He's almost like the bottom rung of a, on the ladder of like a heist crew. He's like, his name is Muscle on the crew. And so he doesn't seem to have many sort of like special skills. He's not particularly remarkable. And in most films, he's the person who's standing behind a more famous person who then gets into a fight, maybe has one line and then gets killed as the, the famous person gets away, you know? So he's sort of the, a disposable character normally. And so for me, it was really interesting with him to take a disposable character from other things and then say, well, he's got like, he's got a life, he's got hopes, he's got dreams. He's like, he drops his kids off at school. You know, he wants to open a bistro. It's like, what, you know, these people that you sort of dismiss as side characters in in a film that, you know, in some house movies that, or in crime movies where they, they are just sort of like the colorful weird side characters, like the con artist, the sort of weapons expert. 
normally it's sort of like the person right in the middle, the sort of the character in this, which is Diane, who is the the driving force for all the action. And for me, it was interesting to make her the mystery and then make all these people. It's almost like taking the parents out of the room and letting the kids all plot together. And so then when you work, you you think, well, who are those characters or archetypes? So we sort of took the archetypes and then we worked backwards from the archetypes of, you know, how would they react to the situation? What would they do? And what's interesting for them, because and then, and then, you know, one of them was probably still tracing tracing that feeling and couldn't give up. It's sort of addicted to the life, even though they didn't have to do it anymore. And that was sort of an interesting idea that, you know, she 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 sort of didn't know who she was and that wasn't really a problem. She was just having fun being whoever she was in the moment. Whereas like Joe at the same time is having this crisis about who he is of like, is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? She just sort of doesn't care. She's pinballing around, enjoying herself. And then you have someone like Neve Algar's character who is like the most, you know, we think Joe's very, very careful, but she's like, like monastic in her carefulness. But then in the end, in the modern world, it's hard to be that careful and still and not get caught up in technology's trap. And, you know, as soon as like that trap sprung, then she has to kind of go and basically deal with it in her way, which is very different from Joe's way. And so like the thing about sort of the kids being left in the room, you know, they're not going to agree with each other, but there's no one in charge. They're all, sort of you know, jostling to the who's who's going to be in charge so those relationships are sort of put under scrutiny quite quickly but you have these characters that are recognizable but you you often don't go in depth on them so was, the joy of this was to spend more time than you would in the film because we've got eight hours rather than two hours to really sort of dig into those characters and see how they would react rather than just focusing on you know the brains of the outfit and the psyche and what I love about the experience of watching the show is it's such a visceral experience in terms of the way that you've so meticulously built, you know, moments and, and facets of tension, but then you've also kind of like slowed it down and kind of have these vulnerable, intimate moments. And I've heard you kind of saying that the way that you write is you want it to feel on the page the same way that it's going to feel when you watch it. So kind of when you're writing how do you kind of use language to to really mark out even just okay this is where I feel like the pacing needs to shift and change a little bit and here we're going to slow down and here we're going to kind of speed up and probably have faster edits but you're essentially communicating that through dialogue and stage directions at that point yeah I mean I think it's not particularly revolutionary when I, I sort of use shorter sentences or single words and short words and use staccato rhythms like as you're reading the stage directions it'll be sort of like you know you know, he, he he stops, full stop, turns, full stop, moves, full stop, sees, dot, 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 something. Do you know what I mean? And, they, and so you do that and people are reading it and then you can sometimes just put like one line, one word on each line. So they're reading through the pages quickly and turning the pages. But then when you want to slow it down, you can just slightly slow it down. You know, you can use longer words and longer sentences and keep it a bit smoother and people get a bit frustrated because they want to turn the page, but you're sort of not letting them, you know, and you can tease the information of, not saying straight away what it is they're seeing. It's like, as I say, you say they're seeing something. It's a, it's a shadow. What is it? What, what can he see? And you you ask these questions in the script, you know, and you can go into people's brains in the script more than you can do on the page. You know, that's sort of cheating a little bit. You can sort of say like panic flashes in his eyes and things. And you're like, why? Why, why is he panicking? Because he's seen a sign that says there's going to be a road clearance in outside town. Why is, it, why is he panicking? You know, and, you, so you, and then you say his heart. So you, you can use the sort of tense fast language in a scene that's quite kind of contained and seems quite mundane and you're like why is this why is this mundane situation feeling so tense and that's the idea that we wanted to get into the show as well of using the the, the music and the camera moves and the language of cinema and Nathan's performance obviously to really sort of like put put this tension into situations that you would normally not feel were 
particularly scary, like wandering through a mini mall looking for a, a bathroom for your kid or, you know, being in a in a, a town planning meeting or something. So, um, so yeah, some of it is about spacing out the page and then other bits of it is about the rhythm of the dialogue and how that rhythm works. So if somebody's in the flow, you can, you can really read on the page that the rhythm works as a flow, but then if you sort of break up that rhythm and they, you know, like I'm doing now with like not quite getting my, I, I get my ideas out and like little noises that that you know that slows you down and you want him to get to the point and so you know you can you can you have a lot of power as a writer you know to to sort of lead somebody through emotion and you should you know you should do it on the page because the page is you know where it all starts and that's the if you can if people feel it on the page you then then know what you want to feel when you get get there on the day and there's nothing you know they're not surprised that it's not going to be a comedy scene when it's a tension scene so, you know, and there's almost kind of like structurally two different things at play, which is, you know, if you have the idea of the tension being a balloon, how much do you want it to be in the air? When do you want to bring it down a little bit and drop it? And then you've got the structural element of the fact that you're writing three different timelines, the the before, the now and the then. Um, and so kind of like within that, how would you find the different pacing elements of, of the story with the fact that it is always this balloon of tension that's kind of going up and down because if you hold it up high too long then you're going to kind of like lose the the specialness of creating that feeling for the audience but if you bring it down and then kind of like pop it back up then that does something completely different yeah I mean the jump around of time sort of gives you opportunity for more little mini cliffhangers like you know like I guess like ad breaks used to in like uh network tv that you can get to a certain point and then leave it you know like one of the first you know one, one of the first times we jump back in time he's just He's done something a bit surprising. He's snuck out of his house. He's got the car. He's driving somewhere. Where's he going? We don't know. But then we go back to the past. And the past, you think, is going to explain where he's going. But it doesn't really explain completely where he's going. But then he gets to this place. And, says, oh, what's he? and so you're told this. So he gets a little ha little uh, cliffhanger there. But then when you get into the past, you take it to a point where there's a little bit of a cliff, an open question there as well. It's like, well, who is this guy? You know, and how did he get to where he is now? Then we cut to the now and he's doing something else. And so you can sort of get to an uh, you don't have to answer the questions you ask a question and you cut somewhere else and then you by the time you got back you can jump forward in time to sort of get further through the story so you don't have to do you know you don't have to do all the necessary steps you can go like a b c jump back in time and come back and do like m n o p and then jump back in time and come back for like you know x y z so you you can use that structure for your own benefit and you know on this on the page it's sort of because you can sort of describe where you are very quickly on a page and really situate people, it's a lot easier than when you actually have it on the screen. Um, and that's the thing that sort of took us the longest when we actually got in the edit was where do we jump back? How long do we jump back for? When do we show it? And then lots of that moved around. And sometimes from episode to episode, we sort of originally in episode, in the first episode, we saw some of the heist, but we realized we didn't need to see any of it until episode two because you just didn't care about it. It was just a bunch of people running around. But in episode two, you knew those people. And so it just had more jeopardy and it just meant more. Um, so, you know, we discovered a lot in the edit, but but it, it does give you this power of like, you know, we can we can move this around and it means a different thing in a different place and makes the show stronger or weaker. And like, it's, it's a real sort of experimental process that, you know, we, you know, we spend a lot of time in the edit to get right. 
I also love the fact that there's there's kind of like this undercurrent of subtext in in a lot of scenes too because if we look at scenes with Joe when he's hanging out with his stepkids those are really really sweet moments but there's still kind of this unspoken tension because we know everything else that's happening before and uh, and after and leading into it um and was that something that you were you were thinking about when you were writing the scripts or was that kind of something that you started to really feel during the editing process I mean, it's definitely there for his character that we we understand what's at stake. If something's coming to get him, then it's probably going to get all of them. Um, and when we first meet him, he hasn't got that in his mind. He's sort of, it's enough time afterwards that he's probably feeling quite safe. He's sort of allowed himself to relax. And then when he sort of sees the news at the end of ep episode one, he suddenly realizes his entire, this entire world that he's created is in is in danger. So episode so it's two and three, he's really trying, you know, the cracks start appearing and then he's trying to paper over the cracks and they get bigger and bigger and bigger and until he has to sort of do something about it. Um, and so you, the, every time he has the kids, you know, the, an interaction with the kids after that, it just has another little ratcheted up piece of tension about it. And like, you know, there's, as I said, there's a bit where they're walking through a mini mall uh, and then he thinks they're being followed and you kind of think, oh my God, you know, like, what can he do? Because he's like, has to pretend, as you do as a parent in scary situations, you know, you've got to pretend that you're in control and everything's fine, uh, but you're completely panicking and you don't know what to do. And all he's looking for, for is like a way to get through the situation, and get out and, you know, I'm thinking of like, what am I prepared to do? I'm like, I'm, do I, you know, because there's a there's a version of it where he confronts the guy and there's a, he has to sort of do something very, very violent in front of his kids and they're going to think, well, who's this? That's not, not a version of this guy who I know. Who is this guy? And then suddenly you have to explain things to kids and kids are talking to him. It's like, you know, he's so sort of, he's like almost like a, I don't know, like an like a balloon that if like any little hole in it, the balloon starts deflating and he just needs to make sure there's no, nothing punctures his reality and ruins his thing. And he's sort of just desperately trying to keep it together. Yeah. It's 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 so interesting as well when you bring together this group of characters and literally one of the parameters that they're given for for pulling off this job is, don't share any information about yourselves, about your lives. Don't even tell each other your real names. These are your, these are your code names for the existence of this. Um, and so what are the challenges that come off the back of that? Because you want the audience to kind of feel like they're getting to know them, but there's kind of some very intentional mystery and mystique around each of them as well. So how would you ask yourself the question throughout the process of how much information, how much do I want to kind of like let you into this character's world? And, and where does it actually feel important to still kind of keep some things hidden? Yeah, I mean, I think I quite like taking people at face value in real life. I'm not, I am not. I don't really need to know everybody's history. I'd like to know who they are right now. So um, part of me kind of quite likes the idea of like, you just be yourself and then you get to know each other because of what you're doing and how you work together. And it works that way on a film set. You don't, you know, you work with all these people. You don't know much about them, but you're friends with them. You know what I mean? You know enough about who they are from operating. And I'm a real big fan of sort of stories that show you things by process. I mean, you know, like, you know, a lot of heist films are like that. You're seeing people be very, very good at things, like Michael Mann's Thief or something. He's like, he's terrible at his personal life, but you get to know a lot about him for the contradiction between like his personal life being terrible and his professional life being so careful. And like, you know, that's something that I did on Disprint of Alice Creed as well that I like in this, which is you learn a lot by just watching people do things and how they do them. So from Joe being so careful at the beginning, you understand a lot about him and then how the specialist has like set up her her house and where she's chosen to live, you understand quite a lot about them without them saying anything. And then I cheat because I throw in a character who doesn't respect the rules whatsoever. And she pushes at the rules. Kirby's character is constantly pushing at the rules. And without him realizing, he's giving a lot of information to her. And that core friendship between the two of them really exposes a lot of vulnerability about the two of them. 
and kind of you can sort of start writing their backstories without me having to tell what the backstories are for either of them. And you get little glimpses like there's a bit where you know, a bit later in the show he 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 returns to his childhood home and you get little glimpses of what his past was like. And for me, I'm I'm a big fan of just like little glimpses and figuring it out rather than sort of being told this having a big scene, which I'm sure which actors really love having the big scene, but having the big scene of like, oh my God, well, I grew up and I was so sad and I wanted to become somebody else. I wanted to be good and I wanted to get away. And it's explaining everything you already instinctively know. And often they get written, you know, I've written them in lots of things and there was one in this and I wrote, and then you realize you don't need it because the actor's doing such a good job of showing you who this person is. There's more, there's more, it's more interesting if that mystery is at the center of it rather than them oversharing. And then you're like, well, I already got that. Why are you telling me? It sounds like you're whining, you know? Absolutely. And and I also wanted to talk a little bit about the the kind of cumulative car crash sequence in episode one, because that really is just the starting point for so many things unraveling for Joe as a character. Um, and the way that it's filmed is so intricate. It's not just we see the cars collide in that one moment. And I know that you, you started filming that, I think, the first day of production in Canada, and then you were filming... Yeah of it later back in England a few months after and it was like several months of visual effects and the sound design is so beautifully specific as well and so mm. what were the intricacies of, of really just planning and mapping out how you were going to execute that in the way that you have I mean the car crush specifically I mean the car crush and then there's like everything that spools out in episode one with like the, the, the garbage truck and all of that whole sequence was like um I was going to say a total nightmare but it was like it was very intricate and very complicated the car crash in a way, it's great to get it out of the way on day one. So we like start start on day one with like eight separate cameras and like nine different cars to crash, and then um, you know once you've got it, you think, oh great, we've got a really good car, got a really good car crash at least. But then you need to you know you need to get there before you get it. So you need to choose all the cars. You need to make sure they all look a bit different. So you understand which cars there are. They all have to be have doubles. We just need to get those doubles. We need to then I'd storyboarded that sequence so we understood what the setups were. And then you have to film everything up until the crash separately. So you have to shoot inside every single car and the back of every single car. And then they all stop before they get there. And then you have to shoot everything you're going to do. And then you need to then let them crash into each other. And they, they practice and they practice and they practice. Then they crash. And then you need to put him in a special car that shifts sideways with a special effect. Because then we can put the actor in the car because he can't be in the car for the crash, obviously. Um, so there's just so many things you've got to sort out. And, you know, start with you've got to find the location. So you've got to find a four-way, it sounds really easy, but you've got to find a four-way uh, stop sign place in the kind of the right neighbourhood that doesn't have houses right in the corner that has sort of like, you know, pavements or sidewalks that you can you can sort of see the cars from around the building without the building being in the way. They've all got to sort of work. And then you've got to, get, you've got to be able to clear that neighbourhood. You've got to kind of shut that neighbourhood down for three nights and like make sure nobody's going to be upset about that. It's just logistically very, very complicated. I mean, you know, Everything in film is very complicated. And this show was like a 75% location show. So we're constantly moving, going to new locations, shot in four different countries. And so starting with something very complicated was sort of half of the course for the rest of the show. But then, as you say, like the garbage truck sequence, we, we started off in Canada. We were using like, you know, stunt doubles for some of it, obviously. And then we we're using second unit for drive-by. And then one day it totally rained us out. So we had to go back a week later. And, and then all the stuff inside the truck is all done in London. And, then. So you're, you're sort of cutting London back to Canada, back to London, somewhere else entirely for a close up, and you know it's uh, it's this it's like a fifty thousand piece jigsaw puzzle that you have to just very very patiently put together, you know. 
Yeah, because because to your point, there's there's really different different intricacies depending on the locations that you're using. Because you know, it's like specialist goes off and is is kind of like living in a rural landscape where it's snowing all the time. So then you've got inclement weather that you're you're filming around or creating, and then you've got filming at the Tate Museum in London, which is amazing and so exquisite. But I imagine there's a lot of security and logistical elements that go into a location like that. So was it just kind of like every location just had like a whole different list of of intricacies? Yeah, every location has its challenges. It's most mostly it's like how close can we put put our base camp so we can get get there quickly. Um, nor you know when we shot in Norway, the problem with that was that we were shooting that in March. We we'd made plans to shoot sort of because we shot some stuff in Spain. We thought maybe we could go and shoot that in Spain, but the snow was already melting by the time that we were meant to be going there. So um, so then we had to go to Norway and shoot it for real, which was great because there's nothing like going to a place which looks like the place it's meant to be because it is the place it's meant to be. And you just feel like, oh, we're in this environment. It just feels right. I mean, the Tate was amazing because I, you know, I love that room, the, the Mark Rothko room. Um, and, you know, I'd written it in the script specifically to be there. And all the way through, we were thinking, oh, we won't we won't be able to shoot there. We were looking at alternative galleries, even maybe building a studio, making sort of lookalikes and stuff like that, which I really didn't like the idea of. But you're always trying to come up with solutions. But all the time, we, I kept saying, well, have, can we ask? Can we see? Can we ask? Can we wait? And we, we asked and eventually it all came together, which is super exciting that we were going to be able to use these paintings and use that the real location. We didn't even have to like make fake paintings. They're the real paintings. They're the real Mark Rothko paintings. Um, and we had a very short amount of time. So we had to shoot from when they closed till midnight. So it was like we had six hours there to get in, light everything, rehearse, shoot everything and get out, which I mean, I know if you're making a short film, six hours sounds like a long time for one scene, but, but it really isn't a long time to do that. And everybody on the crew understood the mission very well and the actors uh were great and that's one of my favorite scenes in the whole thing just because the actors are brilliant it really sets up sort of the jeopardy of what's about to happen you really get to know these two characters because that's the first time we see jenna's character and then you have these amazing really sort of visceral emotional paintings and we use the color red throughout the whole show but this is the first time we've really sort of like shoved red in your face and it's mark rothko it's amazing yeah, it's, it's such a great scene and, and moment. And, you know, with that idea of color as well, between the three different storyline timelines, you've you've created distinct visual languages for each. And, and I know that you even would have different camera lenses that you would use depending on which time we're in. Um, and the color palettes are kind of very distinctive as well. So how did you determine the style of, of what each of those three ones needed to be? Um, well, we sort of talked about the color palette of... So I, I, I sat with um, Victor production designer and Ian, the costume designer, and Philip, the, the DP. And we we sort of thought about different combinations of colors. And we would put like swatches of colors down and say, well, which colors feel like these places? And we really knew that like red and green and sort of white were sort of like the red and green, black and white was sort of the, the, the present day. And so they used as accents colors all the way through uh, for, for that one. And then we wanted to very much limit the palette for um for the heist so it's mostly blue and yellow in there um because it's really sort of like very different from red and green like blue and yellow feels very different and the way we treated the image is like it's a bit grainier it's a bit more contrasty so when you're in those ones because it's all set in one day so they're all basically in one or two sets of clothes just for that one day it's very easily recognizable as that day and then you've got the the bit where they're prepping for the heist and that we wanted to go for softer colors instead of making it feel like tough and like, you know, hard boiled. Um, we wanted to go for soft colors. So through those, there's a lot of sort of pastel colors, a lot of white in the colors. So 
like a lot of Gemma's things, and we want to put Gemma in monochrome, but keep Nathan in sort of lots of different things that don't really match her. So in the take, she's in black and white and there's red on the walls, and he's in this sort of turquoisey teal that doesn't match, and he's in sportswear, so he doesn't match anybody else in that gallery. He looks totally out of place. So he doesn't really fit into that scene, but he does fit into that time because he's he's within the palette. So we spent a lot of time talking about how to make that work, and then we did camera tests with those things, with those colors to see which colors really fit into it and how the the, the texture of the image, the um, the lookup table that we put onto each, it's get very technical, but the, so basically a bit like an Instagram filter that we put on for the, each of our rushes that it just kind of sets, a, you know, 50% of the look in place on the monitor. So you can just sort of see if you're, you're in the right area. Um, and, you know, it's, like everything else, it's just sort of a slow process of getting it right. And after a while, we could really see that, you know, if there was something in the scene that was like, wasn't working color-wise for the palette, we would just like, get rid of it. And, you know, a lot of the time when I take one, there'd be like a red cup or something. I'd be like, no, we can't have a red cup. We're in the wrong place. Get rid of the red cup. Bring in a bring in an orange cup. That would work, you know? So, um, and I think people, people shouldn't really notice it. They should just feel like it's kind of colorful. But sort of instinctively, I think they, they will feel the difference between it and feel the difference in the texture of the image in a way that's sort of very sort of, you know, sort of subconscious and that sort of, you know, semiotic theory kind of way, you know. And with Nathan's performances, Joe, throughout the series, I love the fact that you've really allowed the camera and the positioning of, of framing to, to have, it's kind of like his face carries us through frame by frame for the majority of the story. And there's a lot of use of close up where there's not even any dialogue in scenes with him. And we still get the full communication of everything that that's going on. Um, and so how did you almost to a degree, allow his performance to kind of really lead where we're going as an audience and the way that we're watching the story on screen. Yeah, I mean, because it, it kind of becomes an ensemble halfway through, but it's, it's very much his, you know, you know, he's driving, he's, he's steering the boat, basically. So everybody's getting onto his boat, basically. It's his story. I mean, we flash away from it, but what we should care about is, like, his odyssey. You know, Stephen and I very potentially sort of talk about, like, the odyssey with, like, Odysseus going around, and all he wants to do is go home. You know, and he goes on all these adventures to try and come home. Um, and it's a story about somebody who just wants a quiet life. But to get the quiet life there, he has to have a very, very noisy life for like some of some of this story. You know, he has to really sort of face the worst in himself. And so for me, we were always trying to find here, you know, the moments where he was realizing that he was gonna have to do some things that he didn't want to do anymore. And how, you know, he was gonna have to sort of lie and be violent and be or, and how violent would he be? Would he actually would he allow himself to become that brutal? Or would, does he think you'd like that would be him stepping over the Rubicon that we, you could never return from? And so the thing that was sort of guiding us emotionally through the whole show was was that. And then the the, the characters around him have moments with him uh, that you know very much sort of define him and their relationship to the show. So there's a scene in you know where. I don't want to give anything away. There's even episode six where specialist and Joe have a conversation where she's doing a little bit of little bit of business uh, to to make herself feel better. And you know they have this conversation, which is kind of a conversation about reputations, but it, it's a very intimate thing. And you, you really get from him that like this feeling you get with his kids that he's a carer. He, he's sort of a natural carer. He's always trying to take care of people, but he's but he's sort of quite unsuccessful at it at times. And he gets he's never really sort of taken care of himself, and he needs to. He sort of realise that as the show goes through, and his relationship with Kirby's character throughout is kind of about that as well. Of like, you know, he's he's constantly trying to take care of her, but then there's a moment where she somehow sort of breaks her character and does a nice thing for him because he's earned it, because he has been. Because so 
everything good that comes to him comes from him being good. But it's him realizing that because he doesn't feel like that in the moment. And so, yeah, Nathan's got really expressive eyes. And if he can do it without having a line, he can do it just with a look, with a moment, with a pause, then we would always use that rather than, you know, have him say anything. Well, you've done such a such a fantastic job in the way that you've told this story and, and created it visually on screen. So congratulations on all of that. And thank you so much for talking about the show today. Thank you. It's been fun.